Welcome to Rethinking Youth Ministry, where each week we hope to raise the bar for youth ministry by asking questions, interviewing thinkers, and having real, honest conversations about what it looks like to lead the next generation. I'm CJ, and today I am so excited to be joined by Ashley Bohens. Hey, everyone. Tom Chef Shunis. Hey, everybody. Also known as Chef, and the one and only Mark Ostriker. Well, hey. Also known as Marco. So Marco is joining us for the first time on Rethinking That's Youth right, Ministry, everybody. and we so are excited. really excited about this. <laughs> so for the two or three of you who don't know who Marco is, Marco is the <laughs> co-founder uh, of the Youth Cartel, uh, which provides services and resources for individual youth workers and organizations. He's been married for 30 years and has two kids. What else did I miss, Marco? I know you do a lot of things. That, I mean, that's a pretty good little summary. All right. That's me. Nice. Good yeah. research. All right. Yeah. I went to Marco's site and copy-pasted some of that bio. <laughs> so it worked. You're talented. <laughs> Very talented. It takes a lot to, to do that. Today on Rethinking Youth Ministry, we're doing things a little differently. Usually on this podcast, we're asking and discussing questions. But today, with the end of the year nearly here and Christmas Day just around the corner, we thought we'd slow things down just a little bit with Marco, and have story time. And I know that's like a a little strange sounding. I get that. But we're actually having a little story time with Marco. And this is the the Rethinking Youth Ministry first annual, maybe only annual, (laughs) Christmas Christmas special. Cue the crackling fire. (laughs) First annual, maybe only annual Christmas special. So... Heat up Is this some... because I remind you of Santa? <laughs> you do Ooh, have a little bit. You do have, you do have a great beer. Out. My bowl full of jelly. You can make a ton of money being Santa. Right. You're in the wrong industry, <laughs> Mark. You are. Good at it. You would be. <laughs> not quite jolly. His criminal enough. record. <laughs> not quite jolly. Yeah. They want to allow Santa. Just kidding. He does not have a criminal <laughs> that I know of. Thank you for that disclaimer. Just clearing things up. <laughs> but if you're interested in, in him playing Santa, contact <laughs> right. him at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not Marco.com. <laughs> <laughs> so for real, like we are really excited about this episode uh, and we just wanted to switch things up a little bit. And so Marco is actually here um, for story time for real, but uh, it's about the history of youth ministry. So why, why though, uh, chef kind of pausing and talking about this at this point in the year? Well, I think you know, the genesis of this episode was when I first got this job five months ago, mm-hmm. I, th- I guess, and we were talking about, you know, really putting a student team together that um, could serve youth pastors, youth ministers, youth workers all over the country. Um, we just were trying to figure out where to start. And for me, uh, the first person I thought of was Marco, because I love his approach. I love how honest he is. He would really give us an idea of where we are. But um, I really wanted for us to figure out... Uh, what character we are going to play in the story of youth ministry in this country. And so I just asked Marco, because he's seen so much of the history of youth ministry, at least more than I have, or you've been in... Because I'm so old. I was going to say, was that like a jab there? Well, he's older, but he's also much more involved. I'm the worst professional Christian ever when it comes to like... You're getting better. Well, I am. I I was. Um, Now I really uh, love learning from a ton of people. And so I asked Marco to come in and he did. And he told us this story that all of us just loved. And Mm -hmm. we just thought it's not fair that our partners don't get to hear it. Yeah. So so we called Marco back and said, would you come tell us that story again in this format? And he said, yes. 
Yeah. Well, he sort of said yes. He said, I will be near you. That's true. I will be near you sometime in December. Here are the times and I'll be you. Near can you can <laughs> come find me if you want to do this. So we are actually, yeah. we, are, we actually took the podcast on the road for this one. And yeah. this is like the perfect setting for story time yeah. with Marco because we are at Christmas time. At Christmas time. <laughs> really We're in a amazing. log cabin right now. We, we have are, a, we have reals. like a, yeah, for real fireplace here. Like this is not an office setting. This is the best setting for story time. So heat up some apple cider, hot chocolate, cozy up by the fire and Maybe settle in because Marco is here to share the history of youth ministry. <laughs> Cue that Christmas music. Okay. Well, I'm excited to talk about this. I am a little concerned that this whole story time thing might sound a little more uh, either cozy or pretentious, uh, but uh, I do think there's some really interesting stuff to be learned it's by looking stuff, backward. Yeah. If we're gonna, if we're gonna think about what are we called to do and how who we called to be as youth workers, and what are the needs of teenagers and how we're gonna respond to that then looking back is part of the input that we need to consider. So a couple maybe initial framing thoughts. This is a surreal painting we're going to give, uh, <laughs> not a photorealistic yeah. painting, right? So you're going to color <clears throat> over the lines? Yeah, I'm going to color there. over That's the lines. If you tell. want a more academic history of youth ministry, or youth culture, there are other places to do that. I'm going to paint with some broader strokes um, here just to kind of give a sense of how we got to where we are. Yeah. That's that's really the point of this, not just a history lesson, but why are we where we are? And for many of you listening, why are you feeling a disconnect between the way you think about youth ministry, the approaches that you're using, and what your teenagers seem to respond to, because mm -hmm. I think that's a critical learning of this story, yeah. is the gap between... I mean, the short story is, I think, so many, the vast majority, at least the simple majority of youth workers are operating with assumptions, methodologies, approaches, curriculum, uh, programs that are really fine-tuned, perfectly suited for a great youth ministry in 1986. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, that's not the teenagers, or maybe mm -hmm. we say fortunately, that's not the teenagers we have, and they have a different need. And some mm -hmm. of that is because changes in culture. So let's back up. I'm going to give a. I'm going to give a couple starting points. The first starting point that I want to give is the year 1904. Um, and the year 1904 is. Were you born then, Mark? <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! gosh. Wow! Holy cow! Yes. Listen, I'm just wondering. I was. The listeners Sorry. can't see you. We can't. We can't all be 17, Ashley. <laughs> um, <laughs> Some of us have maturity. Um, wow. So, <laughs> Sorry that happened. It's going to be you. that kind of storytelling. <laughs> um, so, 1904, uh, contrary to popular myth, is not the beginning of adolescence. Uh, there is a myth that has been perpetuate, perpetuated, perpetuated, perpetuated in youth ministry world for a very long time. I was uh, guilty of perpetuating this myself in seminars for years because it's what I'd been told, and that was that 
teenagers didn't used to exist, that adolescents didn't used to exist, that mm. until about a century ago, there were only two stages of life, childhood and adulthood. And I would say back in the day in my seminars, I would say things like, and every culture everywhere in the world had a rite of passage that marked the transition mm -hmm. from childhood to adulthood. Right. And what we now call adolescents were integrated into adult society early on. Now, there's some... There's some shades of truth in that, but it led us to the wrong conclusion that adolescence is a brand new thing. Mm. That's not true. Adolescence been around forever. You want to read a great book on that, In Search of Adolescence by Crystal Kurgis. So good. That's really the book that got me to start to change how I talked about this. But 1904 is a key year because in 1904, this dude named G. Stanley Hall, let's just call him Stan. <laughs> Stan nice. wrote this book called Adolescence, and it had about a 50-word subtitle. And that was quite literally. And that book was the first time most people had really understood what adolescence was. He unpacked uh, and described in detail this not new, but growing cultural phenomenon. In many ways, I think when Stanley Hall described adolescence in 1904 in this book, Adolescence, he he coincidentally maybe was describing something that was right at the earliest stages of youth culture coming out of the scene. I would suggest the other year we're going to look at in a minute is about um, 1948 or so. Mm -hmm. Post-World War II is kind of the birth of modern youth culture in America, and that's when youth ministry really started to take root. That's where the our history in earnest will start. But I want to back up to 1904 because... Uh, in 1904, Stanley Hall did us a massive disservice. Now, he was America's first child psychologist, and uh, he was an expert in the field of child and adolescent psychology. And you would like to think he should have been extremely qualified then to describe this people group called adolescents. The problem is, man... If I ever meet Stanley Hall's ghost, I'm <laughs> yeah. going to punch it in the throat, which won't hurt either of us. But <laughs> right. um, he, I mean, he, I will tell you, Stanley Hall has done more damage to more teenagers, people that I love, oh, wow. than any other human in the history of the earth. Wow. <laughs> that's his legacy. Okay. Wow. Um, people might disagree with me on that, but that's, that's my opinion. And here's why Stanley Hall described adolescence in wholly 100% negative terms. Oh, wow. uh, he started with a summary statement that uh, adolescents are going through a time of storm and stress. That's the phrase he used. And then he added to it a whole bunch of additional descriptors that were all negative. Things like um, that they're emotionally volatile, that they're moody, that they're unpredictable. Now, you might hear things like rebellious was a key word oh, for words him. words we use today, right? Yes, we you do. might hear yeah. these words and think, well, that doesn't sound wholly yeah. inaccurate. Why are you so uh, upset with Stanley Hall? Well, uh, they don't... I would posit to you, the reason it doesn't sound inaccurate is because for 110 years, we've 113 years to get my math right, we've been telling teenagers this is how you're supposed to act, and they're very good at living into our expectations. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the crazy thing, and this is going to sound a little academic for our story time by the fireside, <laughs> but stick with me because I think is not only is it interesting, but it has uh, implications for us. Stanley Hall came to his conclusions and his suggestions about adolescence not based on like a clinical study 
or an observation of a controlled group of, you know, 300 16-year-olds or something like that. Instead, he built it on a side hobby of his. Hmm. So, Jeff, you, uh, you're you a organizational leader and youth ministry expert by, expert by vocation, but I'm sure you have hobbies. Yeah. What's a hobby? Oh, let's say fly fishing. What? Or cooking. <laughs> cooking. One of those things. I don't know what he said at first. Fly, fly fishing. Oh, fly, I thought you said We're safe outside. They're life in this cabin. Fishing. There's a fly stream fishing. outside. Fly fishing. Okay. Yeah. So also, fly fishing. Cooking. Go hand in hand. Fly Great. fishing and Chef. cooking. So cooking. you're interested Whatever. in oh, that, but it'd be, it's certainly not your vocation and not what you've studied and spent your entire life preparing to inform others about. Yeah. In the same way, Stanley Hall's expertise was in uh, psychology. But his side hobby was this weird little sub-theory of evolution called recapitulation. Recapitulation is the idea that any individual uh, organism, in this case a human being, will have, by evolutionary necessity, developmental life stages that mirror the development of that species over time. That sounds like a lot of words. Let me rephrase it. <laughs> a human, if you look at the development of humans over time from an evolutionary perspective, yeah. an individual human will have developmental stages that mirror the development of the species. So Stanley Hall looked at his understanding of the Evolution. human species and yeah. said there were pre-humans, this is his term, there are today civilized man, and in between a short transition period of savages. Mm. So oh, wow. pre-humans, savages, civilized man, therefore, because of recapitulation, those three stages in order and duration must be present in every human lifespan. Therefore, pre-humans, children, civilized man, adults, and this transition period, savages, that's teenagers. So he, uh, he expounded that, extrapolated that, and forced it onto what he was observing about this emerging uh, cultural grouping of people called adolescents. Wow. And that's why it was all negative terms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, here's why this matters, you guys. Take a sip of your cocoa and get ready. <laughs> here's why this matters. <laughs> Here we are, 113 years later, and recapitulation completely debunked within about 20 years of Stanley Hall's work. Mm -hmm. There's no one in the world today who still believes in recapitulation. If you read about it on Wikipedia, it calls it a, uh, a Victorian idea. And yet, our universally understood uh, description of adolescence in America today is completely still foundationally built on Stanley Hall's faulty description. And so um, this, is, this is a problem, I wow. think. Now, here's the silver lining. Because it was a faulty description based on faulty assumptions, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. So we can, in our homes and in our churches create our own cultural norms and expectations. We can tell teenagers, look, you have to learn how to live in a world that treats you as incompetent and incapable and as only negative, but we know that you can be more than that. We know that you are more than that. So learn how to exercise wisdom in a world that treats you this negative way, but we want to treat you in a different way. We won't under underestimate you here. We won't like underestimate yeah. you here. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yep. So that's 1904. Which they love. 
by the way. What do they love? Students would love to be told they're more than they've been told. Yeah. Yeah. And right. They also love the word savage. Yeah, that's true. That's big right <laughs> so now. All isn't of a it? sudden, that word is back. <laughs> yeah. After this podcast, we're going to see youth ministries around the nation start to pop up with the name savages. savages. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> SFJ, Savages for Jesus. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to fast forward. Okay. Okay. That, that's a, a, a pinning point. But um, if we move to post World War II, is where we really start to see the rise of youth culture in America. And there were little, little hints at it earlier, but, and there were expressions of youth ministry prior to that. But we're just going to choose this as a starting point because I think it becomes more meaningful for what's happening today, okay? Um, the reason why we want to look at post-World War II is by the end of World War II, every state in the Union had adopted mandatory secondary education laws that went through grade 12. So if you went 100 years before that, secondary education ended at the end of 10th grade, and only 7% of the population had the luxury of completing it. But suddenly, we went very quickly to this place where people, about 90% of the population of that age, were, were in school through grade 12. And if you take any group of people and put them in the same place for a bunch of time, they're going to develop their own culture. Right. And in a sense, that's the nexus of youth culture, right? The American high school, where they're mm -hmm. expected to be required by law, gave birth to youth culture. And that first, let's call it an epic or an era mm -hmm. of youth culture, was kind of roughly from the end of World War II through to about 1968 or 1970, somewhere right around in there. It was a kind of a brand new thing. There were, there were prehistory parts of it, but in that era, we really start to see it take shape. Now, can we pause there for a second and take, uh, take a little sidebar? Because if we're going to understand youth culture, it's critical to understand youth, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. right. What, is, what is it to be an adolescent? Now, I reject Stanley Hall's definition, storm and stress, uh, that they have to be moody and volatile by evolutionary necessity. I, I reject that. So I have to replace it with something else. What I replace it with is adolescence is a period of time in the human lifespan when there is a, uh, a cognitive capability, or let's just say a capability, right? That you could anchor that in creation. This is God's design and a cultural permission. So these two realities of capability and cultural permission to wrestle with three tasks. And these three tasks of adolescence are identity, which mm -hmm. is answering the question, who am I? Mm -hmm. And autonomy, which is a question of power. So it's how do my choices matter? How can okay. I influence others and the world around me? Um, and then affinity or belonging to whom and where do I belong? So that's, I said a lot of words there. Let me summarize it. Who am I? My right. definition of adolescence is there is a cognitive capacity and a cultural permission to wrestle with identity, autonomy, and affinity. And what were the questions? Who am I? Who am I is identity. Yeah. How can, how do my choices matter? Yeah, is autonomy. The FYI, uh, Stifler Youth Institute uh, study and growing young, they, they use the term, similar terms. They say identity, purpose, and belonging. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I like purpose because it's an easier word to understand. I'm not sure that I, I'm going to switch to using it because I think it sounds like uh, finding my purpose in life. Yeah. Okay. And that's not really what autonomy is about. Autonomy is a question of agency. How can I have influence? Okay. 
So that's really, so it's who am I, how do my choices matter, and where do I belong? Those three issues. And you can't start wrestling with those until you have abstract thinking ability, which you don't have until the onset of puberty. And culturally, we say you have a bunch of years to work on this. That's adolescence, Mm -hmm. those years. You're expected at some point to get an answer to these, some kind of tentative provisional resolve and move into adulthood. Now, you said a lot right there about (laughs) um, the cognitive development. And the good news is we're going to keep moving because we're going to do another podcast here soon about some of that and some of the studies yeah, you've boy. been doing in that. So I'm excited Excellent. about that. All right. Yeah. Good. So we're 1948. Yeah. These are the three things kids are looking for. So let's personify youth culture for a second. If we treat you this brand new youth culture as an individual human, yeah. the, the primary dominant task of those three at that point was identity. Mm-hmm. Because youth culture was brand new. It okay. was wrestling with who am I? And... Uh, extrapolate that onto the lives of average teenagers, it was the long leg of the three-legged stool for the average teenager. It was the lenses through which they viewed the world. So you're saying at that time, they didn't focus on autonomy or affinity. It was just identity. Those were still important. So it's not that those didn't go away, but my suggestion is they viewed those tasks through the question of identity. I got you. Okay. So looking through the question of identity will help me understand how my choices Mm -hmm. matter and where I belong. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's like uh, this, that's why it says the, the question of identity, who am I, was the lenses through which they viewed the world. And that was true for youth culture in general also. Now, let's get to youth ministry. Mm-hmm. We're going to move forward and look at the other tasks and other eras, too, by the way. But yep. in this first era, there were people, youth workers, who said, look at this people group. I, yeah. I, I want to reach these people with the love of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And awesome, right? I will say to you, the majority of that missional impulse was not taking place in churches during that era. Of course, you can find exceptions to this. But what we think of as youth ministry today was not really happening. There was youth Sunday school classes and some things like that. But the, the church in general in the 50s and 60s was treating youth culture as a negative... Uh, fad that was mm. damaging our young people, and we need to stand against it and hope that it goes away, mm. right? Kind of like the church talked about postmodernism in American culture wow. in the 90s, right? Instead of just realizing, hey, it's the soup we're all soaking in, it's just, right. the, it's got positives and negatives, it's the world we live in. Instead of acknowledging it in that way, they were trying to resist it. And so the earliest youth workers in the 50s and 60s were saying, were really more like cross-cultural missionaries. They were okay. saying, there's this people group, I feel compelled to take an enculturated gospel to them that movement's super important. It was, I'm going to go to where teenagers are and bring the gospel to them. Um, and they often had to operate outside of churches. So, so many of the early development of youth ministry approaches and thinking and everything else in the 50s and 60s was done by parachurch youth workers, not by youth workers in the church. Okay. And so that was like Youth for Christ and Young Life yeah. uh, and a bunch of other organizations like that that mostly are still around today. Right. And they were often the pioneers. They were the people who, let me tell you, here's, what it, here's how this goes down to a granular level. Things that we think of as just 
total no duh brainers in, no you know no brainer obvious things in youth ministry like a crowd breaker or getting kids in a circle and having a discussion those were radical revolutionary technologies mm. introduced by the that first wave of youth workers. Right. Nobody had ever thought of that before. You know, youth ministry in the church was Christian education, and it felt very much like a classroom, and kids sat in rows and listened to a teacher up front. I'm characterizing, and I'm sure there are exceptions, but in general, right. that's it's what the, it was. Char- it's the Charlie Brown thing. The wah, yeah, wah, yeah wah, exactly. Wah. Whereas these parachurch youth workers were saying, no, we want to use the language and the mm-hmm. topics that are important to these people and help them discover Jesus in the context of their world. Right, Mm -hmm. So that was this first era, and really there weren't a lot of the youth ministry serving organizations that exist today weren't around back then. There were these great youth ministry parachurch organizations that were primarily about reaching teenagers on their own turf. They were inventing on their own. Very unique. Absolutely. It was groundbreaking stuff. It was experimental. It took a lot of criticism. Right. Um, So I think of... You know, even people like uh, some of you might know the name Mike Iaconelli, who is the founder of Youth Specialties. We're going to talk to him, uh, talk about him, not yeah. talk to him. <laughs> That'd be, That'd be really awkward. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about him in just a second. Uh, but he he was one of those. He and Wayne Rice, his co-founder okay. of Youth Specialties, they were both parachurch youth workers, right. and they de- they themselves developed a lot of that stuff, and it was yeah. edgy stuff, and it was it was perceived as edgy stuff. Let's say that, yeah. Right. It seems so commonplace today. So Jim Rayburn, the founder of uh, Young Life, Young Life yep. what, so he was more, I mean, he was on the front end of that, I guess. Uh-huh. He was but, in that era, too, right. maybe. He was a little before that, even right. in some ways. Uh-huh. Yeah, just going, and he was more a personality that they loved, or how did that, I mean, I just read his book. I thought it was super interesting. Yeah, I mean, he was a brilliant leader for his time, so I'm, right. I'm not trying to no. denigrate any of these people. I think we've inherited... Uh, a lot of amazing st- stuff from, oh, absolutely. from them, right? It. So I was just thinking of the names. There, are, Jim some Rayburn things, and... there are some things from that era that if we still try to perpetuate them today, that they don't work. Yeah. Not because it didn't work then, but because exactly. the culture's changed. Now. Exactly. This is why yes. you're here. So the yes. culture's yeah. changing. Yeah, you want to know why it changed? Yes, we do. Uh, so <laughs> somewhere around the late 60s, there was a massive change in youth culture, and the way I would suggest you think about it is that adolescence, if we can, or youth culture, if we can personify it again, it started to get a sense of itself. It worked out the identity task. Hmm. And so now it was that we're here to stay. Yeah. And culture at large acknowledge youth culture is a real thing. It's here. It's not going away. And suddenly teenagers wanted to exercise their voice. And there was a bunch of cultural issues like the Vietnam War that rose up that that the voice of youth wanted to speak into mm-hmm. well that's autonomy right that's okay. how does my right. how do my choices make a difference how can i influence others uh and so this kind of general sense of trying to figure out who i am had some at least it's some initial framing for adolescents at large and autonomy surfaced as the dominant task during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that 
task of figuring out how can we influence others? How are we different than others? That the power and uniqueness questions became the long leg of the three-legged stool. Around that same time, around 1968, by the way, you specialties started in 1968. Okay. And Mm -hmm. it was Wayne Rice and Mike Iaconelli who were parachurch youth workers, developed all this stuff, printed up the first ideas book, mimeographed it, and sold it literally out of the trunk of their car. That's not just like an urban myth kind of a story. It's really what they did at a super early youth worker event. And uh, they decided to go back into church work. And that was that's very much parallel of what happened in the broader uh, North American church scene is that churches started saying, I guess youth culture is here to stay. Maybe we should do something about these teenagers in our church. Okay. And so they said, hey, let's look at those approaches and methodologies and uh, programs and curriculum and everything that parachurch youth workers developed, and let's bring those into the church. Mm-hmm. And so around the late 60s, early 70s is when we saw the modern youth group born Mm. and it the change was instead of those early missional youth workers saying we're going to use these approaches to bring the gospel to teenagers instead it became we're going to use these approaches to try to get teenagers to come to us and maybe you've heard the word attractional and people get a little tired of it, it, that it's overly negative and there's nothing wrong with attracting people to the gospel. I'm fine with that. But let's just say the primary movement went from being missional to attractional. Okay. And we were trying to say, let's figure out how to get teenagers to come to our church. And that's that's modern youth group. And so we used those same approaches, small groups, fun curriculum, right. mm-hmm. you know, games, dynamic, program. so dynamic right. programming, crowd breakers, all is, that. Is this the rise of the professional youth pastor? Yes. So that was also, yeah. I would suggest, the beginning of the rise of the professional youth worker. And there's lots of factors in there, but that was an early kind of organizational value for youth specialties. Mm-hmm. They saw it very much as a stated goal to bring professionalization and respect to the world of youth ministry. Okay. And so, I mean, decisions were made early on. They started the National Youth Workers Convention in like their second year. Okay. And they chose to have it at a hotel rather than at a church because they said, we want this to be a professional event, Mm -hmm. not a low-budget, crappy event. We really want this to be a place where youth workers are seen as professionals. Right. Even so, if it costs more money. Right. And with that happening, churches are now funding youth ministry, and now there's a market for yeah. youth ministry content. And yep. And youth now we see. Followed by. Yes. Now others, we see I'm an sure. explosion in the 70s, followed by subsequent explosions in the <laughs> 80s and 90s, right? Right. Of more and more youth ministry organizations and resources. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you start to see the development of sub like niches within the youth ministry world too. So you've got training organizations like youth specialties and group and, uh, and then you have, uh, and now orange, and then you've got, uh, you've got camp organ ministries and you've got uh, mission trip, short-term mission trip ministries and you have publishers mm-hmm. and all of these other things. Start youth to pastor rise, counseling. Rise up. Right. Exactly. <laughs> now, right. Marco, how did, how did culture shift its view of this in this time? Because you said in, in the beginning, it was like, 
hey, you know, we don't we don't even want youth culture here. And then over the years, I think it was like the 40s, 50s, 60s, you were saying, well, now society's like, okay, that's a thing. That's fine. It's well, the 40s, 50s, here. 60s was when they were saying the church was saying we don't, we don't want anything to do okay, with this yeah, youth yeah. culture thing. In the, then in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they were saying, I guess it's here to say, okay. let's figure out how to do something with these people. Okay. Right? All right. And so if you had the right program in 1986, you could really attract a good amount of kids. And I think it, I think it was, a, you'd, you'd be challenged to really support that approach from a biblical or a theological perspective, but functionally it worked, mm-hmm. right? So we could look at another youth ministry down the road or across the country that was really successful and copy what they did and probably experience success also. Success being attendance. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Of course it was more than that, but, right. but that was a big part of it. So this is fascinating because... You could do that as recently as the early 90s, mm-hmm. copy a quote-unquote successful ministry and what they do, and kind of be guaranteed that it would most likely work for you also. And that doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. We can learn from each other. We can share ideas. We can, uh, we can talk about uh, values that drive our ministry. We can... Um, learn from learn about best practices but there's been a splintering of youth culture that we're going to get to in a second that means every context is so unique and if we don't have contextualized youth ministries we're going to drown very quickly today in a way that wasn't to 25 years ago wow okay so the shift is coming. The shift is coming. You ready for it? The yes. next shift? We're ready for it. Okay, Tell here it is. Your fault, Around I the think. turn of millennium. It is my fault. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Actually, I just blame everything on my mom. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Hope she's not Don't listening. Yes. You blame it on my mom, too? <laughs> okay. Um, so around the turn of millennium, okay, uh, a lot of people think that it's the rise of the internet, but that's not really... I would suggest that was rocket fuel on the change that was already occurring. Oh, wow. Okay. The reason for the third change is that uh, baby boomers, that's why it's my fault. I'm at the tail end of the baby boomers. And the baby boomers are the first generation in the history of the United States to look backward rather than forward. In other words, previous generations to the boomers always looked forward to, aspired to the benefits of old age. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to have the security of old age, my family around me to support me um, all of these perceived benefits and boomers started to say i i want to hold on to my youth mm. i don't want to get okay. older i, I so want to hold on to the behaviors and practices and beliefs of my youth and so i'll give you a quick example of that my dad awesome guy he's 84 i think right now he and i ha- have had a music overlap an overlap in our music listening libraries of maybe about a half a percentage point, <laughs> right? It's like one Christmas album that right. we both like, okay. One Bing Crosby album. Exactly. That's about That's it, it, right? But my son, who turned 20 the other day, he and I have an overlap in our music listening libraries of about 80%. That's not because my son is advanced in his music listening. It's because I still like the music that he likes too. 
right? Right. And so that's because my generation looked back. Now, when we looked back and started to elevate and worship at the altar of youth, we we elevated it and made it the dominant culture in America. Youth had been, for its prior 50 years, a little subculture, but suddenly right. around the turn of the millennium, what we know as pop culture, which is really youth culture, became the dominant culture. And if you look around America today, it's kind of intuitive. Yeah. You get this sense, everybody takes their their cues from youth culture, and whether that's behavioral expectation or language or art, like music and movies and everything else, fashion, we all take our cues from youth culture. So we but, almost made that shift from tolerating it to glorifying it or lifting yeah, it up. Exactly. That's exactly what we did. Now, here's the crazy thing. Remember the autonomy task? Mm-hmm. Part of autonomy is I want to be unique and different. Okay. So when we all, as a culture, started to worship youth, they were like, but wait, we don't want you to worship we us. Want to we want to be unique and different. Right. Right. And so youth culture responded by splintering. And today, as recently as the last 17 years-ish, there are thousands of youth cultures. Now, this is so important. If you, listening to this podcast right now, have been glazing over at some point and you're going into a cocoa coma <laughs> right now, I want you to perk up because this is probably the most important thing we'll say here. Today, there is no longer one monolithic youth culture. There was as recently as 20 years ago. And today, there are thousands of youth cultures and Every youth group is multicultural, whether they have racial or economic diversity or not. Okay. And this changes the practice of youth ministry in major ways. So right. to get so to get a hold of the culture, we used to go after the football quarterback and yes. So this was a young captain. life approach, right? Okay. Right? Speaking of Jim Rayburn, and their that, approach, which worked great in 1982, yeah. was reach the key influencers, and you can reach the whole school. And they yeah. kind of meant in a lot of places right. football team quarterback cheerleading. Captain. Now this is the rise of the mathletes, the rise of the just mm-hmm. yeah. thousands. The of- idea was. If you reached those key influencers, it was almost like a Reaganomics Mm trickle-down thing of teenage social networks. That's gone. If you want want some homework on this, youth workers, (laughs) um, you should watch the movie 21 Jump Street. Yeah, that's Uh, that's Not with your teenagers, by the way. It's (laughs) it's rated R. Uh, But uh, it's a great snapshot of when these undercover police come back to the school, this change has occurred. When they were in high school, it was the old way, one monolithic youth culture. Now they come back and it's completely changed and it's splintered into thousands of youth cultures. Which means, I'm sitting here thinking about youth pastors who are in their 20s or in their 30s, um, the people that they're looking to and the people they're being mentored by experience a different youth culture, right? So that would mean yeah. those relationships. I mean, here's one of the challenges. There's, I, I mean, in the coaching program that I run, I'm just constantly hearing of from youth workers who are dealing with people in their church, even maybe their senior pastor or a church board or parents who are saying... <laughs> The youth ministry back in 1986 yep. was so awesome because it was like this. Why don't we do it like that yes. anymore? That's not even necessarily a reflection of numbers. Things might be bigger or smaller now, but they wanted to return to the glory days of when we had all that fun stuff. But the reality is culture has changed. We need to respons- We need to be responsive to the culture we're in. Now, here's the deal. When youth culture splintered, back to our timeline here, 
um, that created this loud sucking sound. <laughs> and the loud sucking sound was a desperate need for belonging. Right. Because if you are part of one monolithic thing, you might not like your place in it, but you belong kind of in some right. way. Oh, okay. And now this suddenly we saw around the turn of millennium, this desperate need for teenagers to find a place of belonging from many places that were options, that were options to them. Right. Or maybe not options. Or, right? I mean, like a lot of were so them. many different groups. Like which one do you belong? To? Right. 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 Uh, so now it's this desperate. So that affinity task suddenly became the lens through which they okay. view the world. Mm -hmm. Now, We've covered the three tasks, so let me recap that and I do it in a really simple way. Teenager, average teenager in 1960, wearing identity goggles, looking at the world, asking the question, who am I? That will tell me where I belong. Hmm. Teenager today, wearing belonging goggles, saying, where can I belong? That will tell me who I am. Wow. wow. That's a huge change. And we absolutely have to be responsive uh, by offering unconditional belonging prior to belief, which is wow. a little grenade <laughs> and a... The mic. Can you say that again? Yeah. I don't want to Well, we have to. We're going to be true to our calling to reach today's teenagers with the love of Jesus. We have to offer unconditional belonging prior to belief. Wow. Because... They look for belonging first. They're not willing to go the old school pathway of saying, you got to believe like us, then you got to behave like us, then we'll offer you belonging. Thank they want to okay. belong first to figure out if this is somewhere where they want to be. Then they'll try on the behaviors and consider the beliefs behind them. So this, this, it's really an upheaval. There have been all these other great shifts and other youth ministry organizations that have come along to serve in this, but there's a lot of youth ministry serving organizations that are really struggling these days. Right. Some of that's because of the economy. Some of that is because they're using approaches that worked really well in the last epic, okay. the last era, rather than changing. Other youth ministry organizations, other youth ministries and churches are flourishing because they understand the current cultural reality. Wow. Wow. So what does it mean? You, you said contextualized ministry. Is that is that the phrase you used? It is. What does that mean? Oh, boy. Well, let me say this and then try to answer your question. In my work with youth workers, I think there are two skill sets for youth workers in 2017 and 18, since you might be listening to this then, uh, that are more important than any others. And, you know, in the when you and I were getting going, Chef, yeah. it was... You know, you got to be a great communicator Good and looking. a kid. A kid. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you succeeded that. Um, wow. Wow. I've seen your old pictures. You're a strapping young man. I had a mullet when I first started. Um, so, you know, it was it was got to be a good party planner, right? I mean, yeah. that sounds like a negative or cynical way of saying it, but you have to be a great fun programmer, yeah. you know, and you yeah. have to be a great speaker, a kid magnet. These are the kind of skill sets. Right. Today, the skill sets that will make a difference between a good youth worker and a great youth worker are these. Able to lead collaborative discernment. Wow. Because our best brainstorming will never lead us to as good a result as figuring out how to tap into God's dreams for our ministry. Mm. And uh, responding to context, unique ministry expressions. I'll say it this way. Everywhere I go in the world, the very best youth ministries are weird. 
and I mean everywhere. I don't just mean in the United States. This is true in the U.S. I see it in Latin America. I see it in Asia. I see it in Africa. I see it in Europe. Everywhere I go, the best youth ministries are weird. And what I mean by that is they have a high level of self-awareness about their uniquenesses, and they celebrate those. Okay. It's part of their DNA. It's part of something they're proud of. So listeners, figure out how to develop uh, a, a collaborative discernment team and to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit for who you're, who God dreams your ministry could become. And then learn about your context and build a ministry approach and practice that's responsive to your church's history, the uniqueness of the teenagers that God has already brought and placed in your midst, your own story. Those things I'll will provide down. a more meaningful ministry expression here in 2017 and 18 um, than other uh, than copying the copying approach that doesn't work anymore. Well, here's what I'm thinking. I don't know if I'm right, but I'm thinking the last approach you said it would be hard to build a biblical model for. I think I could pretty easily build a biblical model for what you just described. I hope so. Body of Christ, gifts, led yeah. by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. Marco, in, in the traveling you've done around the world and all of those continents you just named, uh, when you say you see that great youth ministries are weird. Can uh -huh. you give the listeners some examples of what you mean by a unique, weird youth ministry? Well, let me give you an example that's not actually somewhere overseas, mm -hmm. um, but it's just the one that came into my head. It's a little youth ministry at a small church that I um, don't think most people would notice or say, wow, that's a stellar youth ministry that everyone should copy, mm -hmm. okay? But it's a it's a guy that I know who leads a youth ministry at a, a smallish. I guess you'd say it's a mid sized church, but it's probably three hundred people uh, in a small town in Virginia, and they have, for whatever reason, a high degree of uh, disabled kids, kids on the autism spectrum, and other issues like that. A high percentage for the size of youth group, and. They have learned to see that as part of their strength. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that they've seen, um, they've developed approaches to deal with that. It's that they have understood this is part of our uniqueness that makes us awesome. Mm, In fact, that. we celebrate this mm -hmm. because these uniquenesses make our ministry better for everyone who's involved. That's that's what I'm talking mm, about. Mm. So it might be a theological uniqueness. It might be a mm. experiential uniqueness. It might be a geographical uniqueness. It yeah. might be a values uniqueness. Figure out what that is, and it's hopefully lots of things. It's so interesting you say that, because I think of youth pastors I've talked to who live in like military towns, and oftentimes the conversation kind of rolls to, well, it's hard to implement that because people are constantly moving in and out right. of our environment. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is finding the unique thing about that ministry would be embracing the fact that people are moving in and out, and then yeah. how do you shape how can we re dynamic. How can yeah. we be responsive yeah. to that in a way that we can celebrate, That's that awesome. gives us yeah. cause for joy? Yeah. It's it's interesting because it's, I'm just kind of connecting this to something I've kind of observed is that small churches really have an advantage in this culture in some ways, and that large churches' strategies are actually trying to be or create small church groups in the midst of it. <laughs> yeah. So, for instance, <laughs> totally in my past ministry... Um, the best small groups were weird. 
and they would figure weird things out to kind of connect on. And I remember one, they called themselves the Bacon Bros, and they would, you know, <laughs> the small group leader would hand out uh, pre-cooked bacon for Bible stuff. I mean, for, if they knew their verse, I mean, it was hilarious yeah. and weird and awesome, yeah. you know, and uh, the kids just totally gathered around it. And, and so really in a small group, when you, you know, if you can keep it especially consistent and you know the kids who are in it, then that gives you the opportunity to really think what makes us weird, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've always said that, well, I've said for a few years at least that the pathway to great youth ministry is so much shorter for a small church Mm -hmm. because you're so, you're so much more proximal. You're closer to those that, that equation of things that make great youth ministry, which is a growing Adult, like an adult who is growing spiritually and likes teenagers, combined with a smallish group of teenagers, yeah. and then the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Jesus Christ. Over, That's how how important is time. Well, sure. Yeah. Over time, keep the that. Longer, the that is that's great youth ministry. And so often when we grow in size or we're in a larger church, we complexify youth ministry. Right. And uh, or we have a really things. good speaker. We try to build everything yeah. about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Marco, thank you so much. I think we have our, you know, if you're a youth leader, we have our work set out before us, you know, figure out what makes your youth ministry unique, weird, figure awesome. Out how Start, you're weird. Yeah, figure out how you're weird. I love it. <laughs> That's Keep a, it weird. <laughs> yeah, and maybe, uh, and, and I, I want you to do that, but I, I really want you to, to leave with this idea of the importance of belonging mm-hmm. as the dominant need for today's teenagers. And you have to, if you're going to do a great job at youth ministry these days, you have to think about how are we doing as a youth ministry at providing a meaningful place of belonging for teenagers. An unconditional belonging. Unconditional. Even when they don't believe yet. Which means yeah. no matter what. That's, right. That's Which awesome. Is Which is super outsider yeah. focused rather than insider focused. Yeah. Amen. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> well, Marco, Marco, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Rethinking Youth Ministry. I know they can find a lot of your work at theyouthcartel.com. Any other places uh, you would like to point them? To yeah, check I mean, out? my blog is why is Marco, W-H-Y-I-S-M-A-R-K-O. And then all the socials, I'm there. Just find me. Awesome. And we'll have links to all that stuff in our show notes as well. And thank you for joining us for this special edition of Rethinking Youth Ministry. This is the last episode of of 2017, and we are so excited to be joining you for 2018. We have so much in store uh, for you for next year that we're already planning. And uh, we will be taking the next two weeks off. So if you uh, see your feed not refreshing, just know that we will be back in two weeks. Enjoy your holidays and uh, happy new year. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through your Apple Podcasts app. And while you're there, we would love for you to leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing and uh, what we can do to make this podcast better. And finally, for more great resources and for links to all of Marco's stuff, check out the show notes for this episode by visiting rethinkingym.org. Until next time, I'm CJ. I'm Ashley. I'm Chef. I'm Marco. And thank you for listening.